Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Cassia and I spoke to Peter Frankopan, the historian at Oxford University and author of the smash hit The Silk Roads. We were speaking to him at a live event in London, so once again, apologies for the audio quality. Uh, we began by talking to him just what it's like to be in the middle of a publishing phenomenon. The Silk Roads, uh, his book that came out around 18 months ago now, has just really completely taken off. It, I think it's number 10 bestseller in around 10 different countries. We also spoke about the mechanics of actually getting a book like this published. It was a huge idea and initially um, put off some publishers, but he did eventually find um, an editor at a publishing house that was willing to work with him. And we also spoke to him about how exactly he got his agent, which rather strangely enough was at a charity auction. We tried also to get to the bottom uh, of just how many languages Peter Frankopan speaks without complete success. At one stage, a lady in the audience asked a question in Bulgarian that he handled very smoothly. Uh, Sadly, we weren't recording at that stage. Our best guess is, is somewhere between 8 and 18 languages. But finally, and in some ways most interestingly for me, Peter also spoke very frankly about the anxiety that he experienced while he was doing this project, uh, the completion anxiety, the sense it was too big, he couldn't finish it, also the role his wife uh, played in supporting him during that period. And what uh, that really drove home for me is that no matter what level you're at in the game, and he's clearly had huge success with this, that those usual fears don't go away. Yeah, we we loved recording this episode. He was a total charmer. Uh, So we hope you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoyed recording it. Peter, fantastic to to have you here. We'd like to start a little bit just by asking, um, what made you become a historian? How did you get to choosing that? It's deeply meaningful. Um, It's an intense first question. No, I I loved history as a boy, uh, but actually I didn't didn't get to do history A-level. Okay. Um, When I was at school, I fell in love with with Russian, and particularly with Russian history. I was very lucky that I went to school where I could learn Russian. And when it came to choosing my A-levels... Uh, I was really torn about what, what, where history fitted in because um, that's, what I, that's what I loved most. But uh, I did French and Russian and, um, and English because English, I even realised then, you need to understand what writers are writing. And sometimes historians, without mentioning any names, can make mistakes of being over-credible, particularly about sources from the, from the past that you know, what people write is what happened and life isn't quite so simple. Um, and then I was even luckier that in my last year at school... Um, my Russian teacher had gone out to Baghdad, I think possibly somewhere where they didn't serve too much alcohol, and uh, he came back and taught a bunch of us, four or five of us, Arabic A-level in a year. And he'd been in naval intelligence? Is that right? He'd been in naval intelligence, which is, as a teenage boy, it's about as cool as a teacher can get. Yeah. So when he turned up in our Russian classes, he said, look, you guys, you know, I'm not going to sit here and test your vocab. And he treated us like, like grown-ups, yeah. in a way that actually teachers wouldn't be allowed to do today in the state sector or the private sector, where you didn't care what the coursework, so you, didn't, you didn't worry about tests, you didn't worry about... You just wanted people to learn and ask questions. And he was sort of incredibly... He was a very inspirational man. And, um, you know, so I owe a lot to him. So I then went to university. I went to Cambridge and studied languages. And uh, I then went... It was the early 90s, and the, there was the breakup of Yugoslavia. And I, I rang up Norman Stone, uh, who was a professor at Worcester College in Oxford, and I said, could I interview you to profile you for a piece about what the end of, the, what, what the end of communism means, what's happening in Yugoslavia, what's likely to happen with Germany, because he was very close advising uh, Margaret Thatcher at that time. And uh, I, he said, look, come and have lunch. 
and we had to have for lunch. And he said, would you prefer red or white? And before I could answer, he called the waiter and said, let's have one of each. <laughs> and, and then about three hours later, uh, you know, I was only 20. Yeah. He said, how many, how many words in Russian do you know for tomato? And I said, I don't know, four? I could maybe guess at another one. And he said, do you think that's maybe a few too many? And I said, what, I said, what, what do you mean? He said, well, are you interested in linguistics? And I said, no, I'm interested in history. And he said, well, why don't you, if you speak these languages, why don't you study history? And I was quite impressionable. I went back to my college. Um, I went to go and see the, my language tutor, my Russian tutor. And I said, oh, I'm thinking about maybe switching to history because I'm really interested in Russian history. And she kind of paused, looked at me and said, you've had lunch with Norman Stone. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that's, what, I think that's, that's how radicalisation happens. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, you speak to the right person at the right time, it says the right thing. And actually, in my particular case, you know, everybody has their own different pathway, but that, you know, things have all, always going to happen at the right, things have to happen at the right moment. Yeah. So I'm incredibly grateful that I learned how to read Shakespeare. I learned how to understand what poetry is all about. I, that made me a much, much better linguist by not doing history at A-level. What was it um, that drew you to writing this specific book? Uh, which I hope you've all read, The Silk Roads. It is brilliant. I actually have to say I haven't read it. I listened to it on audiobook, um, which is 24 very glorious hours of, of, <laughs> of being read to. But what was it that, that drew you into that? Uh, well, it was the same thing that drew me into my, my last book. And I, I sort of feel like a father of the books I've written, that everyone wants to talk about this one. Uh, the book I wrote before um, reconfigures how we should look at the Crusades, where that story of knights and shining armour and the Pope and Western interventions in the Middle East that don't go very well and end up in failure. You know, the Crusades is almost the last thing that you should work out, you know, you should learn lessons from that are bad. But there are all sorts of sources written in Greek, in Armenian, in the Caucasian languages, in Syriac and Arabic that no one bothers to read because the main story of the Crusade is all about how the West is powerful and piety and knights and violence is all great because a Orlando Bloom looking guy on a white horse looks great, right? And uh, so it's the, same, it's the same process of trying to see what is, not, not what do people think about something, it's where is the evidence, what are the materials, how can, we, how can you step back and look at the same kinds of questions in a different sort of way. And I think The Silk Roads was, was, is definitely a sibling to the book I wrote on the Crusades because it's trying to say that there is a different centre of gravity, that all, that all those relentless books that are saying the same kind of thing that there is a different way of looking at it. And, you know, it's not a polemical work. You know, Silk Rose isn't trying to settle scores. It's not trying to sort of, you know, it's just trying to say this is what materials there are that are available. And for most people, um, it's all brand new, you know, because people don't know who are the great Arabic writers or the great Persian poets. People don't really think about what role Asia played in the origins of the First World War, because we know what happens in the First World War. Some, some fat guy in Sarajevo gets shot, and then the Germans cause it all, obviously. And then Britain rides everyone's defence and save everybody. That's the story of the First World War. And like all stories that are idées reçues, that, that everyone says again and again, like the Crusades, not only is it more complicated than that, actually there's a completely different way you can look at it. But it means being able, first of all, to read sources in other languages, which is, you know, it, which is not, not easy. And also being allowed to go and... Um, follow your nose. And one of the great problems I think we have in academia, academia now is pressure to produce on time. Mm -hmm. 
and you know fruit ripens at its own pace you know I mean I think probably this is a book that would have been is my kind of masterpiece I guess you know I, I can't believe I'll write anything on that that scale again but you know it's the kind of book I should have written when I'm 80 you know and highly distinguished with a big white beard and 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 quite often academics who get to that but they die before they publish it and you know it sits on their desk 800 pages and no one gets anywhere it just so happened that this particular fruit happened to ripen at the right kind of moment and in fact my luck I think it was a, as well as it being the right moment to write it it was the right moment for it to come out. Um, could you talk a little bit about the mechanics of actually getting a publisher finding an agent you know how was that you already had published one book but mm. did, the, did this project flow from very naturally? Um, did it, was, it, was it a sort of a complete idea when you took it to your agent and the publishers? No, I mean, I, 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 I won my agent by fluke, by complete chance. We are, you know, my, 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 wife, my wife particularly is a first-class citizen. You know, she always wants to try and help local communities and so on. She's very engaged and um, uh, is at this evening knocking on doors, canvassing for the election. You know, she's very committed. And we were trying to help support a local museum that's aimed particularly at children in Oxford. Uh, which is much, much harder to raise money for than, than you might think. Look, people always say they'll help and then they don't. And you know, sometimes you have to put your money in your pocket, and, and in your pocket rather, to find the money. And we were supposed to go to, I think, a drinks party that we had something in London. And so she, without telling me, bid for three or four things in, in the silent auction, one of which was a consultation with a literary agent. And we got home the next day and, and got rung up saying, you didn't win the other ones, but you won the consultation with a literary agent. So I rang um, Catherine Clark, who became my agent, and, I said, and she said, look, I don't know who you are, but can we meet in a public place where there are witnesses in case you're whatever? And I said to her, look, at number one, I'm not, one of the, I'm not a writer who thinks I've got a best-selling novel in me. Uh, I've been around the block enough times to understand that no matter how brilliant a book is I write about, whatever it is, people aren't interested in that. They're interested in tank battles in Germany in the Second World War. They're interested in you know, the stuff that we know about. And, um, and she listened patiently, and I explained that my, my, my thesis and the stuff I worked on first, the, the text I translated for Penguin Classics uh, called The Alexiad by Anna Komnina was the first narrative history uh, written in the European language by a woman. And it's been overlooked for a thousand years, more or less, because it has her name on the front cover. People don't take it seriously, um, which has its own interesting dynamic. And uh, so she said, well, look, rather than... I said, she said, where are you on the... You know, you're writing a book about it. I said, well, I, I'm on about page 900 for a massive book that's going to completely change how we think about whatever. And uh, she said, look, it sounds quite interesting. Do you think you could write me a sort of couple of pages about what it's about mm -hmm. that doesn't ideally burst into Bulgarian or <laughs> quote weird sources, but just say why that's important? And, uh, and then she said, look, this sounds to me great. It sounds that there's a new story to tell. And I sat there with her after it came out and I said, I'm never going to write anything that good again. And she said, well, that's fine. You do, if you don't, you know, that's, it's all, I'm not going to force you to do anything, but why don't we have lunch? And she said, you know, what, what would you think of writing next? And I said, I don't think I can ever write anything that good. And then she went for lunch again a few months later. And I said, OK, look, I think that there's something important to say about how we look at the world. And that that chunk in the middle, not the, not the East, there's lots of books about the rise of China and is it good, is it, well, no one writes and says it's good right here in the West. We're threatened by it. Uh, there's more and more written, being written about South Asia and India. But, you know, really no one is interested in Iran or the Middle East, apart from in terms of conflict. And certainly no one's interested in looking at the interactions between the Russian-speaking world, Central Asia and so on. And... I said, I think there's something 
exciting and whatever that, that I think I can write. And uh, she said, well, when, what period would it be? And I said, well, I'd probably stop it about the time that Europe rises, because that's kind of where the story starts to become more about how the West produced the scholars and the scientists and the artists and so on, which is not, not entirely correct, but broadly speaking true. You know, I think if you could pick where you could have lived for the last 300 years in the world, you'd be quite hard to beat London, mm -hmm. quite hard to beat in the last 150 years New York, I suppose. But that wouldn't have been the case for the last 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, she said, look, that sounds interesting. Why don't you go and write a proposal? And I kept saying to her, look, I don't want to write something for the sake of it. And she said, I'm not going to, you just, whatever. And then what always happens when you are, when there's a moment of doubt, you need someone who's got, whose judgment you trust, uh, who says, this sounds great. And uh, so I showed my wife, first of all, and she said, um, that looks really exciting. And even she didn't know some of the stuff I'd, that I was going to, that, you know, that I thought would fit in. And then Catherine said, look, let me talk to a few people. And my publisher who published the first crusade book uh, said they thought it couldn't be done. They thought it was too ambitious and um, it, wouldn't, couldn't, it was unwritable and people wouldn't read it. All the stuff that's in that book, the stuff on uh, Soviet history in the 20th century uh, was, was first worked on at Cambridge in the, late, in the early 90s. And then you've got to bring things up to date. But you already those ideas about how does why, what were the Soviets doing in Afghanistan? Why now? You know, you know what kind of questions to ask. So there were lots of bits of it that have taken a long time to come together. You know, the origins of Islam, the writing of the Quran, is something that I've been sitting on seminars, giving seminars, talking you know, for, for 20 years. So there were lots of different strands all, all coming together. There was part of me that, that didn't expect anybody would say yes. I thought it was, and particularly when the, my original publisher, who always gets the first dibs, mm. said, look, just f forget it. I thought, in a funny way, I was quite relieved. I thought, thank mm. God I'm not going to have to write that book. All of this. Because I, I write my proposals, and everyone does things slightly differently. I quite like a, quite a chunky proposal, so mm -hmm. it's sort of 25 pages long. Mm -hmm. You know, it explains in a lot of detail what topics and mm -hmm. so on. And then there was a sort of flurry of interest of a few people getting excited, including Peter Carson, who was a great Russianist, he was a translator of Chekhov, and uh, he'd, he'd been my editor when I translated the Alexiad, and I trusted his judgment. And he sent me a very nice letter saying, I wish that we could publish it, but we can't afford to pay for it. Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, people don't pay large amounts of money for history books as advances, as I think as most people know. And, but then, but then um, Michael Fishwick at Bloomsbury got it, and he called me in. And, I saw him, he had, he, he, the, my proposal was then, he, there were pencil marks all over it, which is normally quite a good sign or quite a bad sign. And he said, uh, look, uh, this is extraordinary. I've never heard any of this stuff about slaves from Venice um, being exported to the Middle East. I've never heard any of this stuff about how uh, the, you know, the, the, the Silk Roads after the rise of Europe are still pumping and thriving, how the connections of silver flows from the Americas to India. And he kind of looked me up and down and said, look, I understand that you can get the classical world right and the, mid the middle bit, but can you really do the modern bit in the last 200 years? You know, is that really what you do? Have you got the competence? Do you know how to do that? And I said, well, look, number one, that's kind of, you know, I rehashed the stuff I'd done in Russia and the Arabic world and said, you know, once you, once you study that stuff, you're always reading, you're always keeping an eye out. And, um, you know, I'm quite omnivorous outside the Byzantine work is not that much is being written by my colleagues, I guess, to stay in touch. And he sort of paused. I could see he looked at me, and I think he 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 was. I could see him thinking, you know, 
is this guy actually going to manage to do it? And funnily enough, now compare, and then when he said, then, then he sort of, you know, they came and said they'll, they'll take it on. And that book is the exact book that my proposal set out to write, you know, in the right chapter structure, the ideas are all there, some of it's, some of it's more detailed, but there's nothing that I'd left out of it. And so although I hadn't started to write it before um, my publisher said yes, it was, it was like a microwave meal, you know, ready to go it's in. All there, all the yeah, and, and it was kind of, that's my life's work. Mm. And if he'd said no, then I'd have parked it and I'd have come back to it in 25 years' time. I'm not a historian by training, but I sense that in academic history, that this is a way that careers are made, that you, you turn received wisdom on its head. And I suppose playing devil's advocate here, were you, did you feel that you, the, the places you were looking, the, the lines of argument, was that very much led by the evidence? Or did you have a sense like, I want to shake the branches a bit here? You know, which, which way round did it go? No, I mean, I think that there are people who are specifically provocative. And I think that's a trait that is very heavily encouraged in journalism, where you need to make a, you need to have a, a position. Mm. And the more extreme your position is, the more bankable you are, right? That's why we get Nigel Farage on the news every night. That's why we get these extremes. And that's why we have politics in a absolute, in crisis right now, because any normal sane person would want to hear both sides of the argument and end up somewhere in the middle. And I'd have thought most of the country is probably thinking, look, Brexit is going to be a disaster, but let's go with it. Or they're thinking the European Union has got lots of, but we're, so, we're able to listen to both sides and pick out the best of both. But we live in this polarised world. And I think that, uh, that for sure there are academics and there are historians. I don't know what a trained historian is, like you said. But, you know, you, you can do that. I think with something like this, uh, there's, I'm not trying to say what other people have done wrong. There's no school settling, like I said. It's just this is how history looks to me. Sure. And this is where the material is. Here's the evidence. And Lisa Jardine, the great Lisa Jardine, who is a friend and a mentor of both mine and my wife's, um, you know, she said like, uh, she, was, she was very involved in the scientific world. Um, and she said, you can't, scientists never prove anything. You just overwhelm with evidence. Right. And I think that that's what this book here does. I'm not trying to say, discard your theories, jump on board the Silk Road bus. It's to say, this is what's here, this is what it looks like, and that needs to be incorporated, whatever, however you choose to view it or whatever. So there's no, I think there's no, um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not interested in making a name for myself off the back of some two-bit petty argument that, that tries to take people on and fight with them. I think it's, it's not that, it's, and those of you who read it know it's not that kind of book because, you know, who is there to fight anyway when you're talking about the 7th century um, and the, the Abbasid revolution in the 750s? There are not, not many people who are going to come out fighting. Do you feel you had a, a kind of personal association or, or given, given your family's background, did you feel that this was something that was kind of part of your own heritage as an individual and as a writer? I think in terms of what, what mattered growing up was that I came back from the classroom where I'd been learning about the Battle of Hastings and Henry VIII and the Battle of Waterloo and the First World War and I'd switch on Newsround, and um, I'd see Soviet missiles being deployed to Eastern Germany, and I'd see the Iranian embassy in London having its windows blown out, and I'd see Vietnamese boat people, and I'd see the Khmer Rouge on the TV, and I'd see the PLO, and Yasser Arafat, and I could never work out, as a, when I was seven years old, why was it that all the stuff that's front of the news is stuff about people and regions that I never ever hear about, and yet I'm being force-fed this diet that everybody knows anyway. And I think that there was, that there was a kind of uh, awakening, I suppose, insofar as, well, who are these people who are going to murder us? 
you know, why would the Soviets want to kill us all? What's their side of the story? Uh, who is Ayatollah Khomeini? Is he all bad? And, and this black and white world in which we grew up, which I grew up in, I'm much older than all of you, most all of you as well, maybe one or two, you know, that, that black and white certainty is something which makes people, again, that's part of the polemic of modern politics, that you know, Trump is working in black and white, Brexit is black, black and white, and in fact, even, even Remain, for many people, is in black and white. And it's that sort of trying to shade it and say, well, how do, how do these positions look from other perspectives? And I think, as a historian, that was much more important to me, to realise that there was this giant part of the world that we were disconnected from. You know, then when I was 18, it was Tiananmen Square and China changing dramatically. And to try to work out, well, why, why, why is this stuff being kept from me? And how do I go about trying to find out about it? And um, so that's all sort of folded itself into, it, into itself. And I think that that's where Silk Road has its kind of origins. You know, and I, I was very, very lucky. You know, I was lucky that the cover of the book is so fantastic. Mm -hmm. I was lucky that my editor, uh, Michael Fishwick, left me alone. You know, he didn't email me. In fact, I bumped into him after about three years at a drinks party. And he turned around after, after, he'd, after we'd commissioned the book, and he said, I thought you might be dead. <laughs> and, and I said, why? And he said, well, I haven't heard from you. You haven't sent me anything. You haven't told me how you're getting on. And I said, look, I, I just want to stay in my cave. And when I'm ready, I'll come out. And lots of editors and lots of publishing houses, if they invest some money into the process, they need, the, it's, it's on a deadline. It's on a schedule. And uh, the thing I'm most grateful for was being left to my own devices to write the book that I wanted. I was, you know, I'm not kidding myself, the look of the book, the way it's produced. I had a fantastic copy editor, Peter James, who's absolutely wonderful, correcting my sort of, you know, turns of phrases and so on, which is hugely important because there's nothing worse than tripping over the, you know, and in fact, when I was told you use this expression 42 times in the book, and I said, I can't remember what expression was, I said, there's absolutely no way I've used it more than five times, I'll bet you a beer. And lo and behold, you know, you don't recognise your own nervous tics. Yeah. And, and all authors will, you know, if they're honest, we all get slightly snowblind because at, at the end of it, as the book comes to an end, you kind of want it to be done. Yeah. It'd be like having a baby, you kind of want it out. <laughs> don't really care. And, you, and you're convinced that it's as good as it can be. So having a kind of team that, mm. oh, it's a Peter James who was fantastic, copy editor. And then, and then I just was unbelievably lucky that as I was kind of in the dying stages of it, through, I can promise you, no, no, no skill of mine, it just so happened that President Xi turned up in Astana in Kazakhstan and said, uh, the people of Asia have always cooperated together, it's time for us to build a new set of Silk Roads. Mm. And that gave, me, that gave me a conclusion that was sort of building in the, in the proposal uh, because it was clear that Asia was kind of knitting together. But the fact that it became the kind of zeitgeist and the One Belt, One Road initiative in China here in England, we're, you know, we think it's every now and again it's on the front of the news, well, tucked in the newspaper that a train has arrived from China isn't that charming? Uh, I think we are totally, totally unaware of the scale of, uh, of change that's going on through Chinese investments across the spine of Asia right now. So it was incredibly lucky that that worked. And as it happened, the, the moving parts of what's happening in Turkey, where today bookshops are being ransacked, uh, Syria and Iraq, Iran, you know, who knows whether they're going to come back into the family of nations or not, India, Pakistan and Kashmir, China and the South China Sea, North Korea, Russia and its great unknown interventions in the US elections and Ukraine. That entire world that this book is about is all up for grabs and it's all on the move. And, you know, honestly, if, if we'd been talking 10 years ago, it would have been on the move in a slightly different way. Maybe the, there'd be more promising signs in some ways and different fragilities elsewhere. 30 years ago, it would have been the same story of what's going on with Turkey and NATO, the end of the Soviet Union. 
And the whole point is that those Silk Roads and those connections have always been where you should be standing to understand global history. But I was very lucky that that timing worked. And that's probably, I think, why it has got not just a you know, big readership here, but it's got a proper global readership. Uh, the, the Prime Minister of Turkey, the last Prime Minister of Turkey before uh, Yildiriz, came, stopped his motorcade in Waterstones a year ago and went into the Waterstones for half an hour, picked my book off the table and walked around the shop for half an hour looking at other books without taking any off the shelves and then took out one and I thought, okay, it better not be Tintin. Or, you know, <laughs> I took out another copy of my book and walked around with that. All, the entire wall-to-wall -wall TV camera crews in Turkey and then that's the only book he looked at and then he left. And then and the Turkish press went nuts saying, what is this book? And then some guy produced a, a video saying, here he is in the bookshop in Istanbul last week, doing exactly the same thing with the same book. And, you know, I can't make that stuff, you can't make that stuff up. It just, it just, it just kind of caught fire. And, you know, the truth is I've, I, I, you know, a lot of that is, is um, you know, then you, you get asked to come and give talks and you know, time is very precious. But, you know, it, it's, it's a joy for me to, you know, to come, come here. These guys... They're not paying me to be here, as far as I know, right? Uh, One thing that we, we try and do with these events and the podcast is to talk as, as frankly as we can about money and about some of the financial issues involved in writing. And you you know, dis that, yeah. disclose as, um, you know, as much or as little as you want to with here. But I mean, are you, presumably your, your kind of income has historically come from academic jobs rather than from writing. And do you see that perhaps changing going forward with the success of this? Or? No, the, the, you know, the, I think, if, if I'm being really honest, that the mother load in publishing is getting your book serialised. Okay, so uh, when, when David Cameron's autobiography comes out, I'm going to guess that not that many copies will be sold, but it depends, it depends what he writes, obviously. But where, where, he'll make, where he'll make a lot of money, where the money is, is the, the telegraph or the mail, I assume, will pay him a lot to get first dibs on the juicier stories. You know? And, and that, that's how it works. If you, if you can get a book that is picked up by the press, then that pays you properly. And I know people who have got high five figures for stuff that I can't quite understand how the economics of that work. But my book wasn't serialised by anybody. And in fact, you know, I, you know, I've written quite a lot for the press. I've you know, written op-eds. And normally if I get asked to write one, you know, I, I'll try and do it if I can. And particularly if it's something I'm, well, if it's something I'm interested in and have competence on. But, and, you know, that, that kind of helps, although that, that, and, you know, some outlets pay okay, but, you know, you know that as well, Simon. It's, particularly in this country, it's not, not a, you know, it's quite hard to make a living out of that. Uh, I think that, that the sales of this book, which has been a big bestseller, are, it's a, it's a big income, you know, it's a big income as opposed to zero. But, you know, it's not, it's not life-changing. You know, it's not at a scale where, um, you know, you feel that you can you down tools. No. Well, boat. No, but I have looked, but boats aren't very expensive on the, on the, in Oxford. You know, you can buy a barge for a couple of thousand pounds. <laughs> Probably catches fire when the students get their hands on it. So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's also quite hard to tell because foreign, foreign sales, they only pay in once a year. So uh, they haven't done that yet for this year. So I've got no idea. So in Holland, it's been in the top 10 for months and months and months. And there they sell... For 50 euros a copy, yeah. uh, which is a lot, and um, you know I've got no idea what that's going to represent in terms of what drops in. So the Dutch paid me, I think, seven thousand euros or something for my rights, and if my maths is right, I'll get I should get a lot more than that. And what's the next project? Do you have one in mind? Yeah, I've got I've got sort of a few sort of I suppose like an air traffic controller. You know, that's a kind of super jumbo. You know, it's a monster big book. I do have one big super jumbo in the sky that's a big book about Russia that probably won't come in for, I mean, I don't think I'll finish it, writing it for two or three years. Uh, 
uh, so that won't come out for, for a while. But then I've got sort of a couple of smaller planes that it just needs the wind conditions to be right. And, you know, at the moment, you know, I, I said when I sat down, I've taken 50 flights this year. And you know, I'm quite a committed environmentalist and flying, I think, is, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world, but, you know, it's not, not great. But there's, I've also been dragged into a world which is more interesting. I didn't write the book to make money and I'm, I'm thrilled that it's done well. I'm, I'm thrilled for my publisher above all and I'm thrilled for other historians that that serious history can can find an audience, you know, and I think in this world of doom and gloom, you know, it's, it's terrific to know that serious history that, you know, pick, pick a chapter, you know, uh, that, that it can get away, you know, it's, it's, it's terrific for all of us non-fiction writers, but uh, what is very interesting is that what access it's given as a result and what kind of things I've gone to go and talk at or give advice to or be asked my opinion about where, you know, I, I don't, all the stuff, like I said, I've been doing this since I was seven, no one was that interested three years ago or two and a half years ago. And now, you know, now, now there's, now, now people really want to know what you think. And what's interesting, I think, I think is I've, I've tried to stay off TV. Uh, you know, it's not, I'm not doing this to be, you know, become recognized or famous or whatever. You know, I'm a very, despite writing an ambitious book called The New History of the World, you know, I'm, I'm very down to earth, and very, you know, modest. I don't want to have any personal glory. And my, my real thrill is that, is the excitement of discovery. And then the second excitement of introducing what I've discovered and, sh you know, like show and tell at school, that was the best day you ever had. And because uh, you, you've got a chance to show it off. But, um, you know, it has, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's been a, it's been a global, it's been a, I mean, I never thought I'd say that about a book that a Byzantine historian would write, but you know, it's been, it's, it has become a kind of global phenomenon. We've actually got, now got sort of four quite nice questions for you. Zach McLeod Pinsett wanted to know if there was a time that you could go back to on sort of, on the whole scope of the, the Silk Road, when would it be and, and why would you choose that time if you could go back to it? Okay, well, I, you know, uh, I, I've been to the dentist today, right, so, um, I need somewhere which has good, den decent dental care, because I, I think when you read dental guidebooks from 300 years ago or 1,000 years ago, uh, that any medical text, you, you, you know, you should be rightly grateful that we live in the day and age that we do. The smarty pants answer the question is that if you went back anywhere in history, as long as you could be male and rich, it doesn't matter. Uh, I think if you go back in time and you're poor, life is hell, and if you're a woman, almost certainly it's hell. Uh, so I think being a rich man, uh, then you can drop me back anywhere you like. Okay. <laughs> um, Annetta Rusi wanted to know that given this book's scope, um, has it altered your opinion on Britain and um, the EU? The, the honest answer is y you, you pay the price. If you, you, know, you can't guess um, when you come to dealing with other people. If you rely on your gut instinct rather than your brains, you, know, you, you might as well toss a coin. And I think that when we look at Putin, when we look at Turkey, when we look at Iran, by and large, people I know who should know better don't know what they're talking about. It's all what they read in that day's newspapers. Uh, Putin looks like a joker, so therefore we can't like him. Rather than work out, is that actually correct in the first instance? Is he a sort of super powerful overlord? Or is he propped up by a whole bunch of competing interests that can't think of anybody better to replace him? And in fact, he's extremely weak. If you guess and you rely on your instincts, you know, that's, that's what like, my dog does that. Right? So we have a real problem with education where, we, where if we don't study other people and other people's cultures, other people's histories, their languages, what matters to them, there is a price to pay. And uh, the Brits were better at doing that in the past than they are today. Um, you know, I, I think that whatever the post-Brexit world is going to look like, I'd want people who are 
multilingual, well-traveled, open to different cultural influences, and I engage with other parts of the world. And that doesn't look to me the profile of our, of our chief Brexiteers, who look ultra-English and have a very particular view of what they think British history looks like. So it hasn't really changed, I think, my view of Britain. I mean, for what it's worth, empires when they die, or golden age when they come to an end, it's always about a periphery that breaks off. And that's what Britain looks like it's doing. We, we think it's a logical thing that with the Titanic sinking, we might as well take a chance of jumping in the icy water. Uh, my view is that Europe's time in the sun is over anyway, and actually we're just going to accelerate that in, in Britain's case. And the question is, what happens next? So hello, it's us again uh, with a quick update from our lives. Cassia, what have you been up to this week? I just got off the plane this morning from a brilliant and uh, very energising um, trip to San Francisco where I was interviewing uh, the CEO of a company uh, for uh, basically for the, for the final chapter of the book that I'm writing now, which is incredibly exciting. And I got to see a beautiful San Franciscan startup office, which was, which was gorgeous and, and, and good fun. Fantastic. Um, I've had a busy week. I was here in London. Uh, I had a, a big piece come out last Thursday about Patrick Ekeng, a footballer who died uh, in tragic and mysterious circumstances in Romania. Uh, I'm taking another big magazine story for Business Week through its final stages and preparing to go to Russia for an assignment next week. Um, yeah, so lots going on in our lives. Uh, great to have you with us and we look forward to uh, having you here next time. Thanks. Like all writers, we love feedback, so do please find us on social media. On Facebook, you can just search for us at Always Take Notes. On Twitter, we're at Take Notes Always. And we're also on Instagram. And if you've enjoyed the show, we'd love if you could leave a review on iTunes. That really helps. This episode of Always Take Notes was produced by Olivia Kralin, Ed Kiernan and Liz Davies. Music was by Jess Danheiser. And we've been your hosts, Simon Aikham. And Cassia Sinclair. Thank you so much for joining us and we can't wait to have you back with us next time. Always take notes.